Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined again by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. The last time we spoke was on the day off after the first two games of the World Series. It is now the day off after the fifth game of the World Series. The Dodgers hold a three games to two advantage. The last three games of baseball have been absolutely bonkers. I think especially the last two games. So Matt and I are here to talk about what we saw and look ahead to the remaining one or two games of the World Series. Matt, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here. When I think about the middle games here, three, four, five, I remember game three because Walker Bueller was spectacular and because Randy Rosarena hit another home run off of Kenley Jansen. But when I think about these middle three games, I'm definitely thinking about four and five a whole lot more than game three. Does that does that square for you? Yes. (laughs) I mean, I mean, (laughs) controversial take. Exactly. I mean, game four is literally um, one of the craziest games in World Series history. And we've had a lot of crazy ones in the last few years. I think, you know, you. Uh, 2011 game six, the uh, legendary David Freeze game where he um, tied the game up in the ninth inning when the Rangers were one out away. And then he hit, then they, the Cardinals fell behind again and, and on a Josh Hamilton homer. And then they, they won again on a David Freeze walk off homer. That one comes to mind. The game five in 2017, the crazy game in, the, in Houston between the Dodgers and Astros that went back and forth um, and ended on a Alex Bregman walk off single comes to mind. So we've had a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, of crazy games, but I do think that the end of game four in terms of just like how it went down is unlike, I mean, the closest comparison is Bill Buckner, right? Like that's the only thing that comes close in terms of just the, like that we can, that, that we can remember in like modern TV history of um, errors and, and, and muffs blowing a game. Um, you know, the, the, the Red Sox, obviously Buckner famously the error that, that, allowed the winning run to score, but they'd already allowed the tying run to score on a pass on a wild pitch. That probably should have been a pass ball, but that's, that's a, that's, that's a whole other discussion. This was two errors on one play. Yeah. The, the only game I can think of that comes close and it's not a fielding error. Maybe it's more of a mental error was in what year is that? 2013. I think the Red Sox Cardinals where Colton Wong got picked off to end game four. <laughs> like that's, that's definitely one that stands out. What was interesting to me about this game was for the first half of it, how relatively uninteresting it was, right? I was actually visiting my parents that night. So I was like, great, I'll watch a World Series game with my dad. It'll be great. And so for the first five innings, like, you know, Julio Arias was dealing and he looked great. And it wasn't you know necessarily the most exciting games. And then I think after the fifth inning, my my dad went to bed and boy, did he miss some things. Um, I can <laughs> I can confirm that at about one o'clock in the morning or whatever in this game ended, I definitely woke up my mom with a string of expletives that were mostly like, what the blank just blanking happened? Because who has ever actually seen that before? Um, I, I enjoyed people trying to put in context how nuts this game actually was. And I was actually reading this morning that fan graphs from, from Dan Zimborski. So he looked at every play in postseason history. So there's like 125,000 or so postseason plays. And he looked at the changes in win probability for each of those plays and then, you know, put them back into their their games. And basically he came out with there are six one thousand six hundred and sixty eight postseason games. And he kind of ranked them by volatility, like how much back and forth there was. And this game ended up being literally number one in that ranking, um, which I think certainly aligns with the eye test. And if you look at some of the other ones he's had, you know, you mentioned uh, 2011 World Series game six. That was in the top five. 
the 95 Mariners Yankees game two of that ALDS that was in the top five the the second place game I actually have no recollection of the first game of the 1995 NLDS Braves at Rockies so this is like peak Coors Field right was that I can't even remember now if that was the first year of Coors or the last year of Mile High but anyway this was pre-humidor regardless so if you were watching this game and you thought to yourself wow I've never seen a game like this before Turns out you're right, because nothing like this um, has ever actually happened. I'm, I'm still not sure that I've completely like wrapped my head around it. I remember when game five started thinking to myself, I, I'm not over game four yet. Like, I'm not sure I'm ready for another baseball game. I need like I need like a week to just think about what I saw. And oh, God, we have another one. And if that's how I felt sitting at home watching it, I cannot imagine how the players felt <laughs> going into game five. If game five of this series does not, and I know it won't, but I'm going to say this anyway, if it doesn't dispel the idea of momentum as a thing, like (laughs) nothing ever will. Because if momentum was a thing, the Dodgers would have lost like 17 to nothing yesterday. Instead, they came out and scored, um, what, two runs in the first inning? Um, Two in the first, one in the second. And basically were kind of, I mean, not in control, but like, you know, they were never like, it was like, oh, the Dodgers are going to, like the whole game was kind of like, oh, the Dodgers are going to win this game. You know, the the one, um, I don't want to get back to game five in a second, but it was like, like momentum is not a thing between like if you want to argue within a game i'm not i still just dis- kind of disagree but like from game to game these guys are professionals they know what they're doing it just doesn't it this should dispel it once and for all because like there was there's never been a more crushing loss they're about to go up 3-1 to win the with one win away from the world series and that happened two errors on one play and the thing is like it ended up, I mean, over the, the course of the last few innings of game four, there were so many kind of like goats and like heroes and kind of kept going back and forth. You know, what I thought was going to end up being kind of like the cool story of the game was going to be like, um, was how Bruiser Greater All got big outs in the eighth and Jack Peterson got the go ahead hit. And it was like, hey, here are, two, here are two guys who are like the heroes of the game for the Dodgers who basically probably shouldn't be, except for the fact that like two botched trades in February, um, you know, I, I can't even remember the exact circumstances, but it was like, Jack Greaterall was going to go to the Red Sox as part of the original Mookie Betts trade. Is that right? And then they were going to trade Jack Peterson to the um, Angels in a trade in the, with with Ross Stripling with, with Ross with Ross Stripling. And then I guess the Red Sox didn't like Greaterall's medical, and then the the Angels decided to pull out of the deal at the last minute. So instead, these two guys who were basically going to be elsewhere ended up being kind of like um, we're going to be the heroes of Game Four or part of the heroes of the Game Four, but of course that's not really how it played out. And then it ended up being kind of like Dave Roberts took a lot of heat, and I'm curious to to get your take on kind of his bullpen decisions down in the end of the in the end of Game Four, starting with um, Pedro Baez, who I still can't believe is only like 30 and has only been on the Dodgers since 2013. Because if you ask me, it seems like he was probably like teammates with like Oral Hershiser. <laughs> Pedro Baez, uh, somewhat similar to Kenley Jansen, actually joined the Dodger farm system as a position player. He was a strong-armed third baseman who absolutely could not hit, and then they converted him um, to the mound. And yeah, it does. If it seems like he's been around forever, it's because he has. I think the only longer tenured Dodger is is probably just Jansen and Kershaw, and then Baez has been around since like. 2014 um real real quick on the momentum thing because i saw this this morning you're, you're absolutely right by the way i i heard people talking yesterday about oh the momentum has changed well if so then it's not momentum that's that is not how momentum works um <laughs> right ryan fagan of the sporting news tweeted this and i thought it was really interesting in the last 40 years we have had 16 world series so almost half go uh, end up being tied at two after four games okay so 16 to two ties the team that then won game five to go up three games to two 
How many of those 16 times do you think that team ended up winning the World Series? Half the time. Exactly half the time. Did you actually see that or are you just making like... I'm just kind of guessing because I know off, I, I can think of, you know, offhand of a couple of, you know, yeah. sort of famous examples, examples of teams winning yeah. six and the, seven. The team that lost game five, then in game six, went 11 and five. So um, I, I the old saw is momentum is as good as your next day's starting pitcher. I'm not sure that starting pitchers do that anymore unless I guess you're Walker Wheeler the other night. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny because like this is obviously very impactful for the Dodgers to have won, but it certainly does not end the series um, in any way. I, going back to your question about, about Baez, I was thinking about this kind of in both games. So the biggest mistake I think that Roberts has made and I think we can confirm he has made several. So in game four, he brings in uh, Baez to relieve Blake Trine. Very, very first batter Baez faces is Brandon Lau hits a home run, and then Baez gets out of the inning, a ground out and a strikeout. Okay, fine. Well, it was reported afterwards that Baez uh, had basically been told, that's it, you're going to get out of the inning and you're done. And then in the bottom, at the top of the seventh, the, uh, the Dodgers you know, end up scoring a run because Jock Peterson drives in Seager and Turner, and so now that they had, you know, extra runs, he said, actually, okay, Pedro, go back out for another inning. Well, what happens? Uh, Kevin Kiermeyer blasts a home run off of Pedro Baez to tie the game, and everybody's losing their mind about Baez. That, to me, of all the postseason decisions, maybe that Roberts has ever made, that is the one that stands out to me. It's like, if you just got to put your guys in position to win, I don't know I don't know how you do that. You know, that is the thing um, that really kills me. That That is a tough one to get over. And obviously, you know, it seems like maybe to work out, I think, Maybe Roberts was unfairly maligned in game five, which we'll get to in a second. The other thing that stands out to me about game four, you know, aside from the craziest play ever, is there seemed like a lot of grumbling about Tampa's use of the four-man outfield, right? Because, uh, well, actually game three, I guess that was, because Betts got a ground ball through the regular second base hole. Uh, Turner got a ground ball through the regular shortstop hole. And I think people are just like, well, this is this is bad. It doesn't work. Why would you ever use this? And while I think... I would not use a four-man outfield against Mookie Betts. Like, I don't, I don't like using it against a guy who is fast and makes a lot of contact. I like it better against, you know, slow guys who crush the ball to the outfield. I think it's a little unfair to just like point to the times where it didn't work and forget the times it does work. Like in Game Three of the ALDS against the Yankees, they played uh, Kyle Higashioka like perfectly. Like the left center field gap, Kiermaier was right there. Um, I looked up the numbers. This just doesn't happen all that much in the regular season. One percent of pitches came against the four-man outfield, um, the Rays had 53% of those pitches, right? In the postseason, 98% of the pitches with the four-man outfield have been the Rays. Like, this is a thing they do. But in the postseason, if you throw out home runs, because obviously it doesn't matter how many outfielders you have, uh, there's only been 23 batted balls, uh, 21 batted balls, excuse me, and nine of them have been hits, you know? That's a 429 BAPIP. That sounds bad. It's not enough to make any conclusions on. So I don't love it against Mookie Betts. I don't mind it. In, in practice, especially after we just spent an entire series talking about how great the Rays defense positions everybody. <laughs> it feels like we've turned on that pretty quick. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It does feel like they probably earned the benefit of the doubt. And I, um, it's I th- to, to a certain extent, when you try it with someone like Mookie, I feel like a lot of it's more about what we've, you know, part of the, the whole idea of the, the original, you know, infield shift is not just like positionally being in the right position, but also trying to get in the head of the hitter. Um, yes. And I think that that's probably part of their hope is like, well, if, Mike, if Mookie Betts is thinking about the four man outfield, then like maybe he's not thinking about the at bat in the way that he should, and we kind of have we kind of got him got him right there. So again, I'm not necessarily saying um, uh, I 
am 100% behind it, but I do, <laughs> I am certainly Rays have put a lot of time and thought into how they <laughs> implement the, um, the, the four man, the four man outfield. And I think that like, um, um, at the end of the game, I, you know, I, have a, I have a, was, had like a, a, a text chain going with a, with a, with a Dodger fan friend of mine who was sort of like very angry about the end of the game. And, um, he was, he was very angry at Kenley Jansen. He felt like Kenley Jansen shouldn't have been put into that spot that they don't trust him anymore. And I kind of disagreed with that because I felt like Jansen didn't really pitch that poorly. You know, it was a couple of like really weak hits. I mean, he did walk a guy, but it wasn't like, oh, he was getting rocked. And I felt like given the, given the available options at that time, he was the guy to, um, the guy to bring in. And I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit last, last show. We talked about like the Dodgers bullpen confidence ranking and sort of who do they trust. And I think that still is kind of the big difference between the teams. And granted, the Rays relievers have not pitched well. That's actually probably that's probably the biggest difference in the series right now is that like the stable, quote unquote, has not been particularly effective. Um, you know, uh, Nick Anderson won, Diego Castillo, Pete Fairbanks, they just haven't been that great. And they've been hit around pretty hard. But I do think that is the big difference is like the Dodgers don't really have like relievers you're excited to see, whereas the Rays have like three or four guys where they put them in. Like you're like, you know, the team is like, okay, we're like, we're, we're really, we're really pleased these guys are in the game. Whereas the Dodgers, whether it's just narrative or like what, it doesn't feel like it. Now, granted, last night, you know, Dustin May came in and looked great. Blake Trinan looked like 2018 Blake Trinan. Um, and I have to imagine, but then again, in, you know, game four, he gave up a couple of runs. So it's, it's, it feels like it's hit or miss. And yet Jake McGee still is nowhere to be found. Who? Who did you did you know that Jake McGee in by Fangraphs war had the highest war of all Dodgers relievers this season? He was he, so good. In September he had 16 strikeouts and zero walks, and he's basically been on a milk carton um for the entire month. I, I do want to dig into that and and really like get into game five, but we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more about game five of the World Series. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Having your own home is awesome, but it's also a lot of work. The good news? Finding help for your projects is easier than ever. Introducing Angie, the app that puts all your home care needs at your fingertips. Need a pro to fix that emergency leak? Maybe find someone to build a deck or even set your seasonal tasks on autopilot. Angie can handle all that and more. Expert pros, hundreds of home projects, clear pricing, and the easiest way to book and pay in seconds. This is Angie, your home for everything home. 
Download the app today. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt, before we get into the late innings of Game 5, because I think that's when the game got really interesting, I do want to start with what the Dodgers did against Tyler Glasnow. Uh, They hit him really hard, and it's not like they hit 12 home runs or put up 15 runs against him or anything, but when you look at the quality of contact against him, he had a 100.4 mile an hour average exit velocity against. You can tell right away, that's a lot. 13 batted balls Tyler Glasnow gave up. 11 of them were hard hit, which is 95 miles an hour. Or above 11 of 13 is an 84.6 percent hard hit rate so what i did was i looked up every postseason game dating back to 2015 where a pitcher had allowed at least 10 batted balls that is 404 games guess where that 84.6 percent hard hit rate landed number one number one atop the list that was the hardest any pitcher has ever been hit in the Statcast era in the postseason knowing nothing else about the game except for that would you have expected this to be like a 10 run game in the third inning <laughs> yes um and it's just, i mean it, it 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 i mean i after the after the third inning i was saying to some of my colleagues on slack like i can't believe uh glass now still in this game because it yeah. just felt so perilous from from the jump like he was just like he wasn't he wasn't really getting swings and misses the ball was getting hit hard it just he felt like he was laboring with every guy um i saw a tweet from brandon mccarthy former big league pitcher um, who I thought said something pretty interesting. He said, if you can only go up and down with no ability to work side to side against these LA hitters, you're dead on arrival. Where is Glasnow supposed to get outs on his terms? And I think that like observationally, I totally see what he's saying. Like Glasnow doesn't like everything just like the, the, the way he pitches. And like when he's on, he can get that breaking ball, especially against lefties. And like, he kind of can bury it at the back foot and sometimes get swings and misses that way. But it's still very much, everything is like straight or up and down. And the Dodgers just do not seem fooled by Glass now at all. Like in, in game one, if not you know, even though he's he's throwing a hundred and he's got that he had, that breaking ball will freeze you from time to time. It just it just hasn't seemed to be like the the Dodgers are faced at all by him. Yeah, he threw 102 pitches. 57 of them were fastballs. 42 of them were sliders and just two curveballs. So he does not have a third pitch. And when I think about guys who are two pitch pitchers, you know, Nick Anderson comes to mind, right? He also throws a fastball and a breaking ball that he calls a curveball. He doesn't throw as hard as Glasnow does, but the big difference is that when Anderson is right, he is really dotting the top of the strike zone with that fastball. And Glasnow does not have that kind of command, you know? So he's kind of all over the place. And uh, the, the Dodgers, I think, you know, it, it's not maybe as interesting as wild walk-off plays or crushed home runs, but the way they made Glasnow kind of work and never really get comfortable is a, I think a big credit to, you know, part of what their success has been this year. Um, there, It's kind of weird to think like, I know game four is what's going to be remembered as the wildest, most interesting game, but I, I sort of enjoyed game five more. I think like, I think the decision-making was a lot more fun. Uh, for example, Manuel Margot tried to steal home. <laughs> like that was awesome. <laughs> Whether you think it was a good play or not. And um, I'm leaning towards, I liked it. It was fun to watch. It was really, you don't see that that often. I got a kick out of it on the broadcast where um, they were talking about how one of the most recent times that it happened, Smoltz was on the mound in the 91 World Series, and he didn't remember it. 
And I thought to myself, well, that's that's weird. Like I've talked to players who remember not only like every home run they've hit, but they know like what count, what pitch and what the wind was that day. And like, how does Smoltz not remember this? And I saw someone tweet it out. It was actually like a busted squeeze play where the guy got caught going back to third and it went down as they steal a foam. Of course, he didn't remember that. Um, I think my reaction to watching it was mostly what just happened that broke my brain. I can't believe they actually did that. I, I think I liked it. I'm going to tell you why. Kiermaier was hitting against Kershaw, and I thought I saw what I felt was a lot of bad analysis there. They're like, well, Kiermaier hit a home run off of Kershaw earlier in the series, so uh, how can you run out of that situation? Kiermaier is not a good hitter in the first place. He's not a good hitter against lefties over the last three years. He's got a 292 on base percentage against lefties. I don't have a great deal of confidence in Kiermaier putting anything you know hard in play against Kershaw there. And then if you watch the video of Kershaw, he does a thing where he puts his hands up in the air, you know, and he's he's taking a while to get going and he's a lefty, so his back is to the runner. Margot got a pretty good jump. You know, if if that throw is offline, like even by a little bit more, he's he's safe. And if you're trying to make something happen, Tampa Bay's offense has not been that good. I think I like it. I'm not entirely convinced I like it, but I, I see what they were going for there. Yes. On, on, on that note, um, Turner was shifted away from the bag, so it was allowed him to get a much like a much bigger, even a bigger lead from third than you normally would in a normal situation. So I think that's part of the reason um, you do it. And then we actually we had um, um, our friend Tom Tango do a little breakdown of sort of the win expectancy and like the cost benefit. That I thought I'm going to throw some numbers at you. I'll try and make sure I, I, I explain this in a clear way. So when Margot was standing on third, the Rays' win expectancy was basically 42.1 percent. If he'd been successful to tie the game at three. Um, with the raise of the home team that gives him an edge, it would have gone up to 54.2%. But instead, it only dropped like 6%. So basically, it, it, it was either going to go up 12 percentage if he's, if he's If he's safe, it goes up 12 percentage points. If he's out, it goes only goes down um, 6 percentage points. So basically, Tom said from a cost-benefit standpoint, if he thought he had at least a 35% chance of being safe, it's worth it for him to go. Do you and think he had a 35% chance? Because I feel like I, he did. Exactly. That's why I think. That's why I think it was like it's. You know, I don't. I don't. I don't think Manny Margot was actually doing that calculation. Although, if he was, that's pretty awesome. But I think he sort of was like. I think it was. Um, um, but I think that like he knows that that Kiermaier against Kershaw is a terrible matchup for them. He sees. He sees. Um, he sees Turner off the base. So he knows he can get a huge jump. He also saw last night. Hey, the Dodgers made a couple of clearly like botched a couple of pretty clear like fielding plays and you like you know in a, in a key moment in a way that Cobb probably is in their head right now like I'm going to make them make a play here that they are not used to making and see what they do and they 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 executed it well but I mean he was out by like an inch and it was one of those plays that had he been called safe it would have been hard to almost would have been hard to overturn because it was you could, would you have been able to say oh there's clear evidence that he was out I liked that Kershaw um, referenced a similar play from like four or five years ago against Houston um, when Carlos Gomez was trying it. He's like, oh, I knew what to do. I stepped off and I threw home. Um, I also wonder, maybe he talked about this and I didn't see it, but I'd be interested to know what the effects of having very few fans are are on this and that, you know, does does he have a better opportunity to hear what's happening? Like if his teammates are yelling at him, then he might when the crowd is sort of going nuts on that. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if he's talked about it. Um, but I thought that'd be interesting. What did you think about the way Roberts used Kershaw? Because I think, you know, Kershaw got into, let's say, the sixth inning, right? And he was pitching well, and it didn't it didn't seem like it at first. Like, there was actually a point in, like, the third or fourth inning where I was agreeing with you that I didn't think Glasnow was going to last that long. And then there was a minute where I was like, wait, is he going to last longer than Kershaw is? 
because <laughs> there is definitely a point. Uh, yeah, in the third inning. So he gives up a single a strikeout, a triple, a single before he gets allowed to strike out at the end of the inning where I'm like, hmm, how, how long is this going to go here? But he settles down and he gets into the sixth inning and he gets uh, a Rosarina to ground out on the first pitch and he gets Brandon Lowe to pop out on the first pitch. And what I hadn't realized at the time was that was actually the third straight pitch he'd throw and that was a, a ball in play because this final pitch of the fifth inning is a ground out from Yandy Diaz. And Roberts comes out and people start losing their minds because Kershaw had thrown two pitches and gotten two outs, right? And I was sort of indifferent on the decision. If it was me, I probably would have left him in to finish the inning against Manuel Margot. But, you know, I didn't have that strong of a feeling about it just because the entire idea of getting on Roberts for lifting Kershaw too early after everything we've seen for the last like five years um, where he's just getting killed for leaving him in too long. It's hard for me to get upset about that. I hated the the aspect of it so much, though, that he got two pitches on two outs. That tells you nothing that all that tells you is that the Rays are getting a lot more aggressive on the first pitch because Kershaw is pretty predictable. You know, I always like to joke a pitcher is dealing right up until the exact moment he is not and trying to put any impact in two strike, two pitches and two outs uh, is exactly that. So I don't think I would have made that move, but I don't have a big problem with it just because it's not like Kershaw was missing bats. It's not like he was dominating the whole game. And the worst possible outcome here is that Roberts leaves in Kershaw too long. I'd rather have him come out too early than too late. I think part of the issue was Dustin May has not been that impressive this postseason. He was yesterday. He was in game five. But at that point, I I think there was a lot of concern. So that's the first Dave Roberts uh, decision that's going to get questioned. Where where were you on that one? I thought it was the. I, th- I mean, like I thought it maybe has been his his his, uh, his best decision of the of the series. I gave him a ton of credit for kind of sticking with his convictions, not leaving him in too long. You know, he goes to the mound. You could see, you could you see the replay. You see Justin Turner encouraging him to try and get like get him to keep to keep Kershaw in. And you know, you, you said it before, like so much. So a big part of the Kershaw playoff narrative is that they leave him in too long, and that. That's a big part of like the damage has been done against him is like third or fourth time through the lineup, like, you know, sixth or seventh inning, they leave him in because he's Kershaw, not because they should. And I thought this was a great example of saying like, you know what, I'm not going to, you know, we got, you know, he because he wasn't even, it's not like he was even that great yesterday. So I kind of felt like he kind of labored. It actually had the makings of a game where like all of a sudden it unravels quickly when you weren't even that, you know, good to begin with. So um, I give Roberts a, a ton of credit for, for making the move. And sticking with it, I thought it was the, the the right move, even given like whatever your your um your concerns about the Dodgers bullpen right now and what Dustin May is going to give you. I'd rather have Dustin May right there than Kershaw at that point, you know, third or fourth time uh, through the lineup. Yeah. So May comes in and he strikes out Margot on one oh one five with movement, which is something nice to have. And then sort of a surprise was that Dustin May looked really good. You know, he gets through the seventh one two three, and then he comes out for the eighth and he gives up a single. And he allows a fly ball and out comes Roberts to remove him for Victor Gonzalez. And I saw people complaining about that as well, because like, oh, May looks good now. Like we're totally overreacting to what we've seen in the last like 25 minutes. And the eighth inning is a really fascinating inning. So there's one on and one out. And Victor Gonzalez, who's a lefty, uh, had a really good rookie year. gets a lot of ground balls and got the raise to actually use two players because Mike Prasso hit for G-Man Choi, who was actually hitting for Yandy Diaz. And then Gonzalez, there's a wild pitch. So Kiermaier gets to second. Where did you like about that pitching move? I think I actually liked that one because the concern people had is you bring in Victor Gonzalez and you know, almost certainly he's going to have to face Randy Rosarena. 
and people want to know why you would ever put a lefty in that situation. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, I don't love that either, but I don't know that Roberts had any better you know, moves there because Dustin May is a fastball pitcher. Do you want someone throwing fastballs to Randy Rosarena? I don't. Are you going to bring in Joe Kelly? Absolutely not. Pedro Baez, you are certainly not going to do that. Uh, Jake McGee or Adam Kolarik, if you want to call them back from the gulag they are somewhere, they're not going to come in. Gonzalez didn't really have that big of a lefty-righty split. Obviously, super small sample size. Um, and he did get him to fly out. So I, I don't know that there was a better option there. Like, you don't want a lefty against a Rosarena, but who do you want? I think it was more just that I think it was more that it, it, it definitely had the appearance of playing right into the raised hands because of the three batter minimum. It's like, oh, I'm going to the way it looked was like, oh, I'm going to bring in this lefty to face G-Man Choi and we will now have the platoon advantage. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, they're actually just going to burn G-Man Choi and bring in Brasso and have Brasso and a Rosarena lined up against this lefty. Man, what have I done? I've walked right in. I've walked right into this. I think that's that's the way it looked. And, you know, to your point, that might have been. Robert's calculation was like, you know what, I, I'm okay with Gonzalez facing facing a Rosarena in this situation, given all like everything that you know I know um, about what's what's coming. Um, and then obviously he was able to get, he did have the good. Once he got through a Rosarena, he had Brandon Lau, and that's obviously a good a good matchup, lefty on lefty for the Dodgers. But that's the way it looked. It, it definitely gave off the look of Cash is playing checkers and Roberts is sorry chess is playing cash is playing chess and Roberts is playing checkers that's what it looked like but you may be right that I mean that could be part of the calculation I think maybe um and I'm not even as high on greater all as a lot of other people are but I think maybe some people maybe that would have been the the, the guy available um that he'd only he only threw a couple of batters the night before so I would think that he might have been the guy that um you would have seen you would have maybe preferred to see there to face um to face Choi in the Rose Arena but um you know I didn't it, I kind of went back and forth on that one. I'm not. I, I'm not really sure. And then the the final uh, at bat of that inning, which was a really interesting play that you actually asked me to write about. Gonzalez gets Brandon Lau to line out to center field to Cody Bellinger, who obviously had not played center field in Game Four because he had a stiff back and ended up DHing. And AJ Pollock played, ended up getting replaced later by Chris Taylor, who kicked the ball around and started off that wild play to end the game. So in Game Five, Bellinger's back out there. And this is a pretty important play, right? Because there's men on, it's the eighth inning. And Bellinger made a running catch that may not have looked like much on TV, but if you look at the StatCast catch probability figures, he had 4.4 seconds to go 74 feet. That is a 45% catch probability. That means catches, uh, means, uh, means outfielders with that opportunity make that play just less than half the time. And that is, uh, it's, it's a credit to Bellinger. So I, I wrote this all up and please go check it out on the site. It's partially because uh, he was running at top speed, and it's partially because he got a great jump on the ball. We can define jump as like feet covered in the first three seconds in the right direction, and he was five feet above average. That's the difference between diving or not getting there. I found some videos of very, very similar plays where you can see that the uh, similar opportunities were not made. Like I found Harrison Bader from earlier this year. I found one from AJ Pollock from two years ago, which just really made me happy. If you want to close your eyes and think about what happens if Pollock is out there, that is a huge, huge credit to Cody Bellinger. I think not enough people maybe notice that because we only like diving catches. But but to me, as, as Matt, you accurately pointed out when you said, hey, write this up, that was like the defining moment of the game for me right there. It was, it, it was, I mean, this is one of my favorite things about StatCast is you can take, we, we can now see, you know, looking at, at catches and kind of determine their difficulty based on time in the air and distance needed to travel. And as I was watching in real time, having now like 
watched watched um, baseball through a Statcast Statcast lens the last five years. It definitely just it it gave me this feeling of like I think that catch is a lot harder than it looked because I mean the speed, the closing speed that that Bellinger had, and he's he's really become one of my favorite people to watch in the outfield um, because he has once he gets when he once he gets going his top speed. I mean, he ended up with a sprint speed of like 28, 29.8 feet per second, um, where 30 is elite. But remember, when we talk about this, we're usually talking about base runners and you're not wearing a glove, you know? So like getting up to that speed while you're in the outfield while wearing a glove is not that common. And so you saw, you could see that he was just flying. And so it was kind of cool to go and look up at the data and be like, okay, this matches up with my, my instincts on this. And um, it ended up being sort of like a, a hit, a quote unquote hidden great catch that definitely, um, that turned the game, and I know a lot of a lot of center fielders um, would not would not have made would not have made that play. Yeah, it's funny when I when I tweeted out that that information in the article, I had a couple of people being like, you know, it's really hard to tell what a guy's first step is like on on video because you know by the time they they cut away to the center fielder, he's already moving. But that really looked to me like I thought he got a great jump, uh, and it was great to see that the numbers back this up. Before we go, I do want to talk about Randy Rosarena for just a second. Not so much about the the records he's setting for, you know, most postseason hits or whatever else he has. I don't put a ton of stock in that stuff just because there's like an entire month of postseason now, whereas back in the day you went from the regular season right to the World Series. But I thought it was interesting to look at the start to his career because I know to most people he basically like made his major league debut on September 30th and has just been raking for a couple of weeks. It's not entirely true. He actually played pretty well for the Rays over the last few weeks of the season and a small sample for the Cardinals last year. He hit pretty well. He's got 99 career regular season plate appearances and 87 more in the postseason. He has 186 career combined plate appearances. Again, not that many, but still, he's crushing them all in those plate appearances. A 317 batting average, a 683 slugging, and a 439 weighted on base average, 439. So I thought to myself, could we go back through Major League history and find the first 186 career plate appearances combining regular season and postseason of every player, every hitter who's ever lived. And if so, could we compare what Randy Rose Arena has done and see what those guys have done? So I uh, hit up our colleagues, Tom Tango and Jason Bernard. We did exactly that. And it's really interesting. So there have been a couple of thousand guys who have had at least 186 career plate appearances. Randy Rose Arena's 439 weighted on base average is, wait for it, 17th best of the 16 above four of them are hall of famers willie mccovey mickey cochran tony oliva jim bonnley two more will be or should be albert Pujols for sure mini minoso i think should be and then there's a couple of uh of just like solid star players like fred lynn is on this list uh gary sanchez is on this list bernie carbo is on this list reese reese hoskins so that to me tells me a little bit about like how hard is this to do this by accident. But here's the thing that was the most interesting to me. The two guys that were tied for first with a 474 weighted on base in their first 186 career plate appearances. One of them is Jordan Alvarez, who didn't play this year because he had a knee injury, but obviously tore up everything last year. The other guy, and Matt, tell me if you know this name before I tell you who he is, Buzz Arlett. Do you know anything about Buzz Arlett? I do not. I did not either. He got off to the best start in a career in Major League history. I had never heard the man's name. And then I looked him up. I'm going to spend 30 seconds to tell you about Buzz Arlett. He played one season in Major League Baseball, 121 games for the 1931 Phillies as a 32-year-old rookie, never played in the majors again. He was described as the Babe Ruth of the minor leagues. He held the minors home run record for decades. 
when he was being scouted by the Brooklyn Dodgers, and here's part of the reason he didn't get to the major leagues. This is an incredible story. I pulled this off of the Sabre website. There was a series where his teammates with the Oakland Oaks had spent two days just killing the umpire for bad calls. Arlett gets tossed in one game. He comes back after the game ends to question the umpire. The ump hits him in the face with his iron face mask, requiring 12 stitches, getting Arlett suspended, and gaining him an unfair reputation as a troublemaker, which prevented him from being in the major leagues. Gets to the, the Phillies for one year, but was such a bad defender, they didn't have him back the next year. In 1984, the Society for American Baseball Research voted Arlett the most outstanding player in the history of minor league baseball. This is such a tangent that has nothing to do with the World Series. But anyway, Randy Rosarena is on a list with four or five or six Hall of Famers, depending on how it turns out, a bunch of all-stars and the most outstanding player in the history of minor league baseball. Now you know a little bit about Buzz Arlett. And now I'm buying, I think, Randy Rosarena just a little bit more than I was. Like, is this just a hot streak, like the best month of this dude's entire life? Or is this just the beginning of like, no, actually, this dude's awesome? I was uh, I was talking about this with... Uh with Andrew Simon, um, one of our researchers, um, over the weekend. And, you know, I said, I asked him, I was like, you know, this kind of reminds me, I asked him kind of to dig into this a little bit. Um, cause it reminds me of the, the, um, the old Bill James concept of a signature significance. And the idea behind that is basically that like, there are some things that in a small sample are really meaningful and they just have to know what to look for. Like the example that I think I always remember, it's like, you know, throwing, throwing a no hitter isn't necessarily a symbol of being a great pitcher. Cause like, you know, you could just get, you know, sort of lucky on batted balls. They get hit right at people. Like there's been a lot of like mediocre pitchers who've thrown a no hitter. And it's just, you know, hey, they got lucky that day. That's great. Good for them. But like you can't strike out 15 batters in a game if you're a mediocre pitcher. Um, so the idea is like, you know, if a rookie comes in and strikes out 15 batters, that's that's probably a sign that he's actually great and not just like a flash in the pan. Whereas like a no hitter wouldn't tell you that. And I was like wondering the same thing because like with the Rosemary, it's like, you know, he's in the postseason, which is like you're, 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 you don't get to beat up on, you know, the the lower division you know like the second division clubs as as they, as they say like you don't get to you don't, you get to feast on on last men on pitching staffs often you don't get you know fit number five starters you don't get that so being able to like even just maintain this level during the postseason would suggest to me that he's no fluke you know the the usually the players who've had postseasons like this have been like you know super duper all time great players you know Derek Jeter Barry Bonds in two thousand two um, you know even like you know Daniel Murphy, when he did in 2015, well, it was actually a springboard to him being finishing second in the MVP voting the next year. So it's like, you know, that usually it's a sign of something. And um, with the Rosarena and your your data kind of goes a, a step further because it includes the regular season. I am definitely now inclined to to believe, you know, maybe not like MVP candidate, but certainly above average major league hitter. All right. Today is Monday. Today is a day off. Game six is tomorrow, Tuesday evening. Tony Gonsolin versus Blake Snell. Um, Dave Roberts did say today that Dustin May is available tomorrow for a few batters. So I guess we're going to have a whole lot more of pitching questions when Gonsolin gets lifted for, for May, as is like almost guaranteed to happen if there's a game seven. And I'm pretty convinced there's going to be a game seven. Walker Bueller versus Charlie Morton. How do you feel about that? That is going to be a lot of fun. This whole thing has been pretty fun so far. Uh, game seven. Yes. I mean, the, 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 we knew going in the games two and game six are going to be the games where the Rays had a decided, um, starting pitching edge, they exploited in game two where we got the good we got the good Blake Snell. So they had that edge again in um, game six with you know a well rested pen. So um, they'll have Snell. You know Nick Anderson will not have pitched. He's still their top guy that they're going to go to. Fairbanks. I mean he will not have pitched um, in two days. Same with Pete Fairbanks. Castillo pitched in game five, but even he will have a have another day off. So the fact they have like 
the starting pitching advantage and a stable of relievers they are more confident in than the Dodgers do. They're definitely like, as far as like favorites go in a World Series game, they definitely have, you know, would be the favorites here. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be a game seven, but obviously, you know, weird, weird stuff, weird stuff happens. Definitely going to be a game seven. All right. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We will be back in a few days with a World Series wrap up. <laughs>